Welcome to the Filling the Pale podcast. I'm Greg Ashman. In this edition, I am very fortunate to be joined by Edie Hirsch, literary theorist turned campaigner for the importance of knowledge in education and founder of the Core Knowledge Foundation. Welcome, Don. Thanks for having me, Greg. Um, Don, could you tell me why uh, you first became involved in education? Well, I became involved in language theory and language research because in 67, I had come out with a book, 1967, believe it or not, I hope everybody was born by then. Uh, I I, I was born in 1976, Don. Anyway, I came out with a book called uh, uh, Validity in Interpretation. And that took me into language research, language theory, uh, psycholinguistics, and just about that time, the the science uh, and the field of psycholinguistics was discovering the huge importance of background knowledge. And that's what, uh, because I saw that it was absolutely essential to validity and interpretation, which was my uh, theory, uh, my title of my book. And on, on the other hand, I also saw that you couldn't get validity un- unless the, imp- the implied the, the meaning, the, the, the meaning that the author meant, that's what the line I took. With, with v- the valid meaning is what the author meant to convey. And you can't know that without having the proper background knowledge. And that started everything for me because when I uh, visited uh, doing some research to a black uh, university, uh, 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 which we have those, we don't have them anymore, I'm glad to say, but any any case, it's predominantly black. Those, uh, the because I was comp- finding out why uh, students understood or didn't understand their lessons. And, and the uh, students at the Black College did not even understand the questions that I had written down for them. And that was a big shock. They didn't understand my simple uh, questions. And it, a, a, a few years later, there was a, a, a good, uh, uh, education professor, Lisa Delpit, who was black herself and had taught in black colleges. And she complained about the education establishment arranging things so that her students could not understand the language of the classroom. I mean, that that was a very important, I felt a lot of support from her work. It was really what got me into education from that series of, of studies was the whole idea of equity and, uh, and the fact that uh, Blacks still in the United States um, at age 13 or so are almost three quarters of a standard deviation. Uh, everybody asked me, well, what the heck is a standard deviation? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know those, uh, I, if you see a bell curve, uh, there are, there's the middle tranche and then there's a tranche on either side and the lines that separate those uh, tranches are standard deviation. That's a standard deviation. That's yep. a huge amount. Think of it. You're shifting way over to the, to the left. And so standard deviation is this, I think it's important that people understand what it is because all education research uh, if it's going to be intercomparable so yeah. that you understand how to translate from one to another. Uh, they do it in terms of standard deviations and it's very illuminating uh, yeah. once, you, once you grasp it. It should be more widely understood. Anyway, that's a digression. And the, the quick answer was the importance of background knowledge, hugely important. I think I should digress just a minute on that point because there are other things that have happened since I I did that original research. For one thing, uh, 
brain studies have gotten very uh, advanced now, at least compared to what they were a couple of decades ago. And it's been discovered that the part of the brain that does, that learns in school and that learns language and that learns the lore of the tribe, so to speak, that part of the brain is a blank slate, just as John Locke said in the 17th century. And all of the uh, rest of the views of education, particularly those that are dominant in America, child-centered education, is based on the idea that the child has a kind of internal blueprint. And we're supposed to elicit uh, uh, something according to that child's nature. Like it's, a flower knows how to grow into a flower. Not, it's, it's, not, it's not the case. And so that is enormously important in deciding what's, how schooling should work. Uh, and, and, and don't let me digress too much on, mm. on these two points, but they're so tremendously important because what happened from an evolutionary standpoint, because that takes you, those two points that the mind, as far as schooling goes, is a blank slate. That's one thing that's now scientifically agreed on. The neocortex, that's the, the big part of the brain makes our heads so big. Then the other point that you can't understand or uh, produce language intelligibly uh, without the assumption of a heck of a lot of background knowledge. Polly put the kettle on, we'll all have tea. Okay. Or you can say, Polly, put water in the kettle, put it on the hot stove, wait till it comes to a ball. I won't go through the whole, <laughs> but it would take, you know, several, a, a minute or two to say, Polly, put the kettle on, we'll all have tea. And that subtlety in language, which depending on so much background knowledge, that's what makes our head so big. That's why the neocortex had to be so good, because it had to keep all of that knowledge in the mind uh, so that language could work so that the tribe could be much more effective than other tribes. Uh, it, 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 that is, the shared language of the tribe enabled the, the speech and the communication to occur. Now, as I understand, you, you're not saying that we are a completely blank slate, um, because you have that no. important ca caveat, in terms of the things that we learn in school, we are. Right, but exactly, yes. In relation to culture. Yeah. Everything related to culture is formed on a blank slate. One's personality, one's temperament, nobody's. Uh, <laughs> one's uh, lust, one, one's all, all those elements that are by far from being a blank slate. In fact, uh, Stephen Pinker wrote a whole book um, denying the existence of a blank slate. And of course, he's right if he's talking about the whole mind. But the neocortex is where language sits, it's where school learning sits, it's where culture sits. So there is no black culture, there's no white culture, basically. That's a racialization of something. Any colored baby is the same, uh, the red, white, brown. So it, that's hugely uh, liberating, I think. Are you familiar with um, David C. Geary's um, distinction between uh, biologically primary and bi biologically secondary knowledge? Because that sounds like a similar idea. Excellent. I'm glad you told me about that. And, and you can shoot me an email with a little more uh, uh, information. No, biological primary and, and biologically secondary. Yeah. And, and, and that would mean that what I'm talking about in schooling is secondary, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So biologically yeah. primary knowledge is the things that we have evolved to acquire. So things like our, it's slightly different to what you're saying because they, 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 these concepts overlap a bit. Mm -hmm. So we've evolved to acquire our mother tongue because everyone does that in all nations across uh, the world, right. wherever you are. You, you, we've, we've, had, we've got an innate capacity to learn that through essentially immersion and play. Right. But um, biologically secondary knowledge is things like reading and writing, which have been around um, for a very short time in evolutionary history. So we couldn't have evolved a capacity to learn those things through immersion and play. 
Instead, um, we, we have to go through this laborious process of schooling. Exactly, exactly. And schooling, uh, but, but uh, it's why our births are so difficult. We've got this huge neocortex, which is what makes our head so big. And it has to store in memory a heck of a lot of lore so that language can work. It, it, the, 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 because language works efficiently only when it's based on a huge store of shared knowledge. And the, that's what the young members of the tribe need to learn. They need to learn the tribal lore so the tribe as a whole can act efficiently and can, for one thing, from an evolutionary standpoint, avoid death and, and uh, triumph over enemies. And this links to uh, an argument. I've, I've read a number of things of yours over the years. Um, and, this, and one of these is the argument that, so to be able to participate in um, a democracy like the United States and, and be active and make, make yourself heard and get your point of view across, you need to understand sources of information like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or whatever. And the people who write those articles assume a level of background knowledge. As you say, we don't say, we don't go into laborious detail explaining what putting the kettle on means, only tell that nursery rhyme. But similarly, uh, writers of the New York Times will assume, say, a certain uh, understanding of uh, conflict in the Middle East, or uh, and, and they won't go into every single detail of that. And, and, and so we need, if we want our young people to be able to interact with that and then participate fully in democracy, they need to have that knowledge that is yeah. assumed. Completely so. I mean, the, the thing about democracy is that everybody has to learn that, uh, uh, has to use that neocortex. And, and uh, that's, I, uh, entre nous, I think that's one of the reasons the USA is in such difficulties now because it's been, it's elementary, uh, I don't know how much attention you pay to PISA, the Program for International Student Assessment. I, I do follow that quite closely, yeah. It's, um, it's quite interesting in what yeah. it does and doesn't show, yeah. Well, one thing it does show is how well 15-year-olds do in, in math, reading, and, um, and science. Yeah. And uh, those are subjects which schools teach. And USA comes in 25th in the most recent uh, PISA scores. So that means we have the 25th best elementary <laughs> system in the world. And uh, I think that should be rubbed in because um, the reason we kept sinking, I, I, you know, a nation at risk was a report in the United States that came out in 1983 saying, this is an educational disaster, how we've sunk in, in our reading scores and our math scores. Uh, if an enemy had done this to it, us, we would consider it an act of war. Anyway, uh, it was a report that everybody worried about, but nobody did anything about it because the views of our educational establishment. I don't know how it is in Australia, whether- It's very similar, are... very similar. Beg pardon? It's very, very similar. Sim we take a lot of our, um, so a lot of our lead we take from the US. Um, we sort of looked yeah. at the US a lot. We looked at Britain a bit, but Britain has similar ideas. Although Britain's quite interesting in that they've taken this turn yeah. in the last 10 years. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, we would, we do, so for instance, the whole, um, guided reading thing, which I'm not a huge fan of. Um, that that that's a, that was say it again, Greg. Uh, guided reading. So oh, guided reading. Yes. Yeah. So where the kids all sit at different tables and read different level books, and the teacher is with one group. And yeah, that that's. Um, I think that idea originated in the US, and yeah. um, uh, and that's very popular in Australian schools. Well, and also. Can we pause at that yeah. because it's, it's, it's illustrative of a wider point. And that is, uh, there's a, a, a belief, uh, in fact, a doctrine that there is such a thing as general reading comprehension skill. Yeah. 
And uh, this is not true. It is incorrect. There is no general reading comprehension skill. All, all skills are domain specific and reading is particularly domain specific. You have to know the assumed knowledge behind that text, whatever it is, the Middle East, whatever. And to pretend that by going, giving the kids different things to read, you're developing this general skill is simply a fundamental error. It's not what the kids need to know in order to read well is the, the lore of the tribe that's assumed in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or whatever Adelaide newspaper, whatever newspaper you're dealing with. Uh, yeah, and the, the I just other- I got a sign saying my speaker wasn't working, but maybe it's because I articulated too. <laughs> well, you sound fine to me, Don. Um, now, I, we, we, we also, Australia's also been very big in the development of whole language. Um, so, uh, are you familiar with the simple view of reading? Have you heard of that? Uh, no. What is it? Say it again. The simple view of reading. Oh, no, uh, no tell me. <laughs> so, that, I... that's a, a view, that's a reading researcher's view. So, um, uh, and what they say is that reading is the product, not the sum. And this is very important. I got, I got um, pulled up on this once for calling it the sum. It's the product of um, decoding, in other words, turning the squiggles on a page into, mm -hmm. into words, uh, and then language comprehension, which is then understanding what those words mean, essentially. But it's not just about vocabulary. It's about building a situation model. It's sort uh, of the illusion. In other words, the simple view of reading is quite complex. Yes. Because you, you have to know a great deal. Yes. yes. I have to know a great deal about the subject matter you're reading about. Exactly. But, but in that view, of course, the, the general skill is the decoding part. And then yes. the, the specific domain specific stuff is in the language comprehension part. Yes. But once you have mastered decoding, which you can do in early age, yeah. everything then thereafter is knowledge. Everything in reading comprehension is knowledge. So, and what knowledge should it be? It isn't kids reading a lot of different books. It's, it's somebody has to, as it were, uh, understand what is that taken for granted knowledge in the New York Times or that you ought to have to, to read a newspaper properly and to be a, a citizen in a democracy. And this is where you get into trouble, isn't it? This is where the way you got into trouble, because if you do that analysis um, and you see what it is that the New York Times writers are missing out and, and not explaining, you end up with a whole lot of uh, white European um, history figures, things like that. And when you um, uh, listed some of this stuff in your 1980s book, Cultural Literacy, um, that provoked a bit of a backlash. Um, would you like yes. to tell me a little bit about that? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because uh, uh, actually it, it caused a backlash, but it also produced now about 4,000 schools that uh, in the States that are doing quite well, thank you. And, every, and the parents are desperate to get their kids into them. Um, and uh, <laughs> and I, that's, a, that's a footnote, but... In any case, the, the, the list and the sequence, the grade-by-grade grade sequence that our foundation subsequently made actually works. And uh, I, the, the, take, for example, there's a set of schools that do core knowledge in the South Bronx. And uh, those children are a full standard deviation above in language above the surrounding uh, schools. And it's just because they have that knowledge. That and that's an enormous, school. that's an enormous in figure, one standard. pardon? One standard deviation is enormous. Enormous. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and you know, uh, in education research, they, 
a tenth of a standard deviation is considered fantastic. Uh, 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 anyway, so uh, we mustn't, mustn't get, well, it wouldn't be too bad to say a word or two about education research because it's so second rate in the US. Uh, and, and I'm delighted that some of the mainstream cognitive psychologists are getting hold of that. And I just read uh, an article by a couple of good uh, psychologists that actually uh, at the end said, you know, we've looked at this meta-analysis that the education world had produced of this constructivist activity that supposedly works. And the underlying data are so compromised that it doesn't tell you anything. And they omitted the actual well-controlled data. That's another thing. It wasn't completely honest. And it's, it's a nightmare because it's a way of preserving this uh, worldview which has compromised uh, American education. And according to you, it's compromising Australian education. Yeah, I, I would suggest it's anywhere in the um, English speaking world, uh, it's, it's compromised um, the education system. And I have friends in um, Holland and, and other places, people contact me. Uh, and it, it's, it's an extremely popular idea, um, which you call um, in your new book, um, uh, How to Educate a Citizen, you call it educational romanticism because you link it to yes. uh, the romantic movement that, that, took, that um, basically succceeded the Enlightenment. Would you like to t tell us a little bit about that and what the key features are? Yes, that I think it's very important because uh, intellectual history is pretty important stuff uh, when it persists like that, when an idea persists in the face of failure and... You have to have an expert. Why do people continue to do this and continue to believe this? And the reason why, at bottom, it's a uh, quasi-religious faith that to follow nature is the right thing to do, and to do anything unnatural is a bad thing to do. And if you have that underlying belief, which came out of the Romantic movement, uh, you don't believe you think of the human child as a very smart version of the lower, what Horace Mann called the lower orders of animated creation, uh, where uh, Horace Mann was saying, no, 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 humans are different. And, and uh, <laughs> he was right. And, and just as Locke was, was right, as we now know, the humans really are different because they were made to be unnatural. It was natural for them to be unnatural. That, that's why we have these big brains, so that we can form these tribes that are very successful and, and cooperate with one another. So, so a tribe becomes a really, in effect, a big, from an evolutionary standpoint, a big organism because it, its elements can cooperate the way no single creature could. And that's why we're, we're basically so successful. And to throw that away and, and say that we should be more like the unsuccessful creatures is a really bad mistake. Anyway, so the, the romantics, starting with Rousseau, follow nature. That's the, then you can't go wrong. And of course, if you're talking about physical exercise and developing your body, it's all, that's all true. It's not true for the mind. It's not true for schooling. Uh, in fact, what nature is saying is honor your mother and father. Do what the, the elders of the tribe say you should do because we, nature has found that if we give you this blank slate and a lot of capacity, you can communicate, you can form language, you've given you a language instinct, but to make the language work, you have to learn a lot of the same things that the other members of the tribe know. Therefore, if I say, 
instead of Polly put the kettle on, if I say Polly Tiger, I don't have to say a lot more. You've been taught what to do to keep alive. And that ability to, for a lot of people efficiently to communicate with one another, that's a huge advance in evolution. And you call and this- A huge advance in successful evolution. And you call this in your, in your book, you call this a speech community. Yes. Well, it's, that in fact is what the uh, scientists themselves call it uh, in the literature on the subject of background knowledge and language. A speech community is a, is a group of people who sh at least for the language being uttered or, or written in that particular context, share the same relevant background knowledge. That's what a speech community is. It's the definition of a speech community is that shared relevant background knowledge so that they can understand the speech, the, the taken for granted speech. Now, you've, you've mentioned in passing, sort of, uh, uh, but I don't want it to be in passing. I, I want uh, uh, to talk about this in a little bit more detail because it really is an extraordinary um, achievement, the founding of the core knowledge Foundation. So you, you, you sort of suggested there that it came off the back of cultural literacy. So in cultural literacy, you, you try to set out some of these unwritten things that students needed to know if they were be, to be able to um, uh, read things like the New York Times or whatever it is. And then right. on the back well, of that. I, I had great hopes when the book was stayed on the bestseller list for quite a while that it would make an impact. And But in any case, I thought, we have to have a, an agency so that, and we have to get people together and actually uh, create a model sequence for the lore, tribal lore, as it were. And, and uh, since the book made a, a lot of money, I, I used that money to uh, start that foundation. And it has gradually, yes, it's as, as you say, it's, but, but the first task was to make this grade by grade sequence starting in kindergarten and going up through eighth grade. And uh, all it did was say, these are the things you should study in this grade and these are the things you should study in this grade. But it's necessary to be specific about it because uh, one, one knowledge builds on another. And uh, also, and this is the reason the schools have been quite successful from an equity standpoint, that, that these kids from disadvantaged homes uh, are, are scoring by, the, by eighth grade, they're scoring just as well as advantaged kids. In fact, they're winning prizes from schools that, <laughs> from uh, what do we call it, romantic schools in the, in the high rent district and, uh, and they're beating them in these debate contests, it's marvelous. So uh, it's a joy to see that happening. But anyway, uh, the idea was that we don't have any of the state standards. They're all this vague skills oriented um, productions. Nobody is telling you what you should study in the individual grades. So schools buy text, buy text series and they're helter-skelter. So no wonder uh, the Americans have, the, there are two things that have uh, really harmed uh, the United States uh, in deep ways. Uh, one was uh, this idea of uh, that skills, uh, that general skills are what we're really learning. So it doesn't matter what the content is. That was a, a huge mistake. An even worse mistake, or at least as bad, was the idea that you're evoking out of the nature of the child what's in there to be developed. If it's a blank slate, that is obviously a huge mistake. And it, whereas nature is waiting to be told, <laughs> what it is you ought to know. And that second 
that's a pedagogical issue directly. That is, we unbolted the desks. They were all, the little desks were faced towards the teacher. They were bolted down on the floor. In the early 40s, the desks came unbolted and scattered around the room. And the teacher was supposed to be, it was circulate. The teacher was told she or he should be a guide on the side, not a sage on the stage. And so, then that transmuted itself to the current American elementary schoolroom, which is five or six very big tables, five or six children, six, say six children, three on the side facing each other at these tables, and they're called centers. And they're all doing different things. And the teacher is circulating. I mean, if you, I was thinking, if you were to create a contest, which is going to be the least efficient way of teaching the tribal lore? It, what could you conceive that would be less efficient than that? The teacher is not teaching all of the kids. They're facing one another. And that is being supported by a an educational theory that you're familiar with, I'm, I'm sure, called constructivism, yeah. which simply means that the, you're, you're, the child is said to learn better if he or she discovers or constructs knowledge for his or herself. Well, of course, it doesn't happen uh, very effectively because the kids don't have the knowledge to... Uh, construct for themselves and and you you reference in in the book you reference um a paper by uh kirshner sweller clark while why uh, yes uh, now uh, john sweller i'm doing a phd at the moment in cognitive load theory and john mm -hmm. sweller is one of my um phd supervisors and uh He's, that paper is one of the reasons that, so you talk, sorry, you, you talk a lot um, about uh, what, the, the Kathy and Michelle, in your book, Kathy and Michelle, and I was reading their experiences. So they taught in this um, romantic, child-centered way with the centers, and then they yeah. moved to teach in a knowledge-rich uh, environment, and yes. their story is so familiar. It, it's similar to me. I, I believed for many years, um, I couldn't get constructivism for want of a better word although we know we know it's it, it's it's not really the right use of the word but anyway i could never get it to work very well but i assumed that the failing was in me and i would resort to these fairly explicit approaches and it was only later in my career uh, that i started to read things like um kirshner sweller clark sorry that's me let's just get rid of that clark yeah, uh, yeah kirshner sweller clark. and clark that paper and um right. realized that actually I, well, I, I wasn't, the science didn't say that constructivism worked. And what I'd been trying to do, um, the way I'd been teaching was actually supported by um, a lot of the research. But, um, and then I felt quite angry because I thought, mm. well, I've been um, working this out for myself, teaching in a way that I've been improvising, looking at other teachers, see how they do it. But there's a, a body of research out there about how to do that more effectively. Um, but it's been completely ignored. Now, um, you, um, I don't think I've seen you write so much before about the actual methods of teaching. I might be wrong, but I don't think I've seen you write so much about the methods of teaching. Previously, no. what I've read of yours, it's been more on the content. But in right. this book, you write a lot more about the methods. So what's caused that shift um, or, or that emphasis? It, it, was the, it was finally to understand uh, how impossible it was to teach a coherent curriculum if you persisted in so-called child-centered pedagogy, where you're encouraged to discover knowledge on your own. And it's that, I mean, after a while, it became clear. And mind you, I, it's, it's the, shows you the disadvantages of, of being a theorist rather than have, having your feet on the ground in the classroom. It really wasn't until I had that conversation. I, that was a verbatim 
uh, interchange between me and two teachers. And it was very illuminating because uh, I had never really imagined it was as incoherent as it as they themselves describe it, because for, for half of their professional lives, they had taught in a child-centered classroom where you had the centers and you were doing different things at the different centers. And then they had core knowledge and it's w quite wonderful. I didn't mention the name core knowledge and I didn't want to seem to be, you know, pushing one particular curriculum, it was just clear, it was a knowledge sent curriculum and everybody was learning the same thing. And everybody was so much happier. And the teachers and the students were so cheerful about everything. And they were so proud of all those things they were learning. And so I think we better, uh, that, that, yeah, and you know, at the end of the book, I looked up some sociological data on how unhappy some of our teachers are. And they wouldn't be unhappy if they were doing something as fulfilling as having those ha kids happy because they know what the... Well, this is one of my critiques of, of, yeah. of differentiation. So uh, you yes. mentioned differentiation in the book. That there's this hyper, like hyper-individualism where um, yeah. this theory that you couldn't possibly say in grade two, or and, and these decisions are essentially arbitrary, but once you've locked them in, you can build a sequence around them. So you, you couldn't possibly say in grade two, we'll do the Romans, because uh, for some kids, um, that might be appropriate, for others it might not, we've got to do different things, and we couldn't possibly all do the same thing, um, because we've got to have this hyper-individualized curriculum. Um, and then what that does to the teachers is it means that they've got to spend, they've got to stay up until the small hours every night, creating all these different things um, because they can't just teach one class. They've got to essentially prepare thing, lots of different resources yeah. to keep kids busy doing lots of different things. And, and it doesn't work very well. And um, in fact, it feeds on, the difficulty feeds on itself because what will make the class successful is if all the kids know it isn't that one thing is really appropriate, more appropriate than the next, particularly if it's something new. It's whether the kids understand the language of the classroom and can learn the new thing because they're understanding what you're saying based on the old things that they know. And if everybody knows some of the same old things, that it turns the class into a speech community. And this is completely what happens. And it, and it's very important for equity. It's very important for bringing up disadvantaged kids. And it, I think that Black Lives Matter and, and all of these uh, people who felt, feel left out need to ref insist themselves on changing the pedagogy of the elementary school. But I think it's, abso it's absolutely fundamental to equity. I was talking to, in my last podcast, I was talking to an American teacher, Jasmine Lane, and we were talking about the idea that, um, and, and this goes back to um, this concept of, uh, if you do look at this default bit stuff that people miss out when they write, and you do get this very European white um, curriculum. And, and so we probably... I think we all want to do something about that. We wouldn't just teach yes. that straight. We, we want to uh, recognize the yeah. diversity of, um, of people in our, um, in our nations and, and, and different backgrounds and, and different cultural experiences. And we want to feed that into the curriculum as well. But we talked about the idea that um, you, you've got, if you want to overcome disadvantage, there seem to be two approaches. The approach that, um, that, that maybe we would favor, which is you, you prepare the child for the world as it is, so that in the future, if they want to, they have the power and skills to change it. Or you have a, a more a revolutionary um, approach where mm -hmm. you say, well, no, we need to change the world um, so that uh, we don't have to teach kids this stuff uh, and that the stuff that's more relevant to them um, will enable them to move ahead because we've changed the world to make that happen. And I wonder whether that's a kind of fundamental mismatch, you know, fitting the child to the world or 
fitting the world to the child. Well, absolutely. Well, there are a few things left out of the let's change the culture to be more inclusive instead of let's change the child to master the existing culture. Uh, There's an intergenerational problem, but there's also an international problem, particularly for us English speakers. Uh, I looked at what was available in the way of English language newspapers in the country of Bangladesh. And there are 24 English language newspapers in Bangladesh. And I just wanted to see if I could read them all. And I could. And so you have a kind of print culture that is by now international and it's a got a big hunk of Americanisms in it for various historical reasons. And it seems to me that nobody can claim that Bangladeshi newspapers are inherently Anglo white or whatever, because they're not. And it's, it's the print culture. And that is what literacy is, of course, is knowledge, is, is to do the knowledge of the print culture. It's, and another point is it's awfully hard to go back and say, we have to rewrite all the books in the library. You can't do that. No, I think uh, given the amount of history under our belts, it's quixotic and impossible to say we have to totally change literate culture. I think there has, I think there has to be a lot of accommodation, but I think people have to recognize, and my argument in this current book of mine, uh, the last section is called American Ethnicity, because uh, America from the start was supposedly what Frederick Douglass called a composite nation, a comp- uh, and that's exactly what it is. But a composite nation is just as much a, a nation as any other kind, and it has its shared elements. And I think there should be a conscious, just to make people feel more at home, bring in elements of Latin in the, in the states anyway, Latino culture, Black culture, but there is no inherent. Latino culture. There's no inherent black culture. The American culture is just as ethnic because it's just as artificial and made up as those other cultures are. They're all artificial. They're all made things. They're not natural. They're they're invented languages. The idea that these so-called ethnicities are something inherent as a kind of racism it's and it's uh, and it's inaccurate and this thesis of commonality uh, that sort of runs through the book um, yes it, it's refreshing and it's strikingly at odds with um you know the zeitgeist that emphasizes personal identity even right. things like uh, the concept of cultural appropriation where uh, if you belong to this group you're not allowed to um to appropriate uh, cultural um, artifacts, styles of dress, styles of music uh, that, that somehow belong to another group. Th- these all sort of, they're like a centrifuge that's pushing us all apart. But that's you're, true. But you're yes. saying we need this commonality. Yeah. I'm saying we need this commonality, but I also say that this neocortex is quite a remarkable organ and you can have more than one ethnicity. And you certainly can put on more than one identity, as it was the idea. And I, I don't, I don't know exactly what intersectionality is, but uh, but I, I keep reading various definitions of what it is. But in any case, it is it it doesn't define who you are. Intersectionality doesn't define because you you have these. You, you are not this unitary thing. You, we, we, can, we all put on different cultures, even to go one, to one's in-law's house, you suddenly have a slightly different culture than you do at home. I mean, you've got to accommodate yourself to these nuances, of course you do. But the idea that you have this definite identity, you don't. It's all acquired, it isn't. 
and and it's also up to you and your schools and everybody else to create this uh, shared identity. I would say this composite, what what Frederick Douglass called this composite culture, this composite nation. And, and what I say, I hope people aren't insulted, but I say to to think that it's something intrinsic, inherent, and particularly if you label it with Latino or black, it's ancestor worship. And that's exactly what the Americans, anyway, the American spirit was to do away with all this stuff, say to heck with my, our ancestors, we're gonna start something new. I like, I really do like uh, Frederick Douglass. I, here's, it, it, it was, what a remarkable person he was. And uh, <laughs> I think if we, in a sense, uh, nobody is going to say anything really bad about Frederick Douglass. Uh, uh, I think it's so marvelous that he believed in this homogeneous, uh, invented culture. And and that's what all modern nations now are. I'd say they all have different uh, genesis, don't they? I mean, different groups in them. All the successful ones are heterogeneous. And because modern. you can pull on lots of different traditions and ideas and yeah. probably that's the, and, the and, source and of creativity and renewal. All of the successful nations have immigrants usually. <laughs> and. Uh, so you, all of us now in the modern era, it seems to me, are composite nations, uh, pretty much, if you're, if you're a successful nation. And, Changing yeah. tack just a little bit, um, just going back to the sort of, um, the idea, the, back, back to the knowledge-rich um, uh, curriculum concept. What would you say to someone who claimed that children don't need to rote learn a bunch of disconnected facts these days? <laughs> because if they need an item of knowledge, they can just Google it. Uh, you've got to understand the uh, entry in Google that you're reading. If I, I was thinking if you can Google it, they're probably talking about Wikipedia. I mean, you, Google is just the website. I mean, you're, you're going to, the thing that you, you put in something and you get a Wikipedia article. Well, it's great if you can understand the Wikipedia article, but there is a step before that, obviously. You can't. And <laughs> that's what I found out when I gave that assignment to the black students and I was just trying to find something. So they didn't understand the question. And these illiterate kids can't understand the Google article. They can't understand Wikipedia. If they could, it would be a great success because it's a very useful thing to have Wikipedia at your fingertips. You've got to be able to read it. And uh, it would be a wonderful, I mean, I, uh, that's the answer to be given to those people. But they're also, you have to say that they are making deep scientific errors about knowledge and reading and about language. And the only way you can look things up is to know things already. Uh, and that's the reason you have, uh, people admit, all of these people admit there's such a thing as disadvantaged students. And how do you make them advantaged? Mere facts. And there are whole sections in, in the scientific uh, chapters of, of the book where I simply head, make heading, uh, and that's a wonderful side, uh, that uh, article you mentioned of uh, Kirshner and uh, Sweller and uh, Clark, uh, it's the, the first one particularly in, in that series, it's, uh, it's quite wonderful about uh, the need for factual knowledge and the need for storing facts in long-term memory. That's, that's the only way you learn anything. Well, what, what, what um, cognitive load theory? So I'm, I'm writing my thesis at the moment. So I'm doing my oh, literature yeah. review on cognitive load theory, which is the area that it's in. And it, would, and it would go even further. And it would say, um, so for instance, basically in cognitive load theory, and I'm probably telling you stuff you already know, maybe in a different context, but uh, it uses a simplified model of the mind. So you've got a very 
limited working memory, and then an effectively limitless long-term memory. Right. Now, you can only process, process um, yeah. about four items in working memory at a time. Right. You can actually retain slightly more, but if you're doing something with them, that's only right. about four items, which means it's yeah. very limited what you can yeah. attend to in working memory. Yes. However, an entire schema that you've got in long-term memory can be brought effortlessly into working memory and processed like that. So if you've got Absolutely. a schema for democracy, with all the implications that means, ancient Athens, uh, whatever, Westminster systems, presidential systems, all that sort of stuff, you can, that becomes one item in your working memory. So you actually you get subvert, or not subvert, you get around these constraints by having knowledge in, in long-term memory. So I, would, right. so I would say that knowledge is um, something that you think with, and you can't think with stuff that's sitting out there on the internet because it's not part of your brain. It's also, uh, it, that's a good way of saying, it. it's, it, that's when you're learning something new and, uh, and putting things together, thinking. Yes, that's for, that pro kind of productive thought based on knowledge. But also the learning process itself is unfortunately, and that's where the, the idea of disadvantage comes in. Learning process itself uh, requires knowledge. Uh, and uh, I'm, uh, I don't know if you're familiar talking about cognitive psychology, but there's a wonderful psychologist in the Harvard psych department, uh, Carol, oh dear, I've, I'm blocking her, her last name. She's, uh, she uh, writes about bootstrapping, how the baby, finally acquires uh, knowledge and it's, uh, oh dear. Uh, this is what happens. I'm, I'm, uh, you have to tell your listeners, I'm pretty advanced in age and, <laughs> and retrieval. I have that knowledge presumably somewhere, but retrieval gets to be really hard uh, after you're 90. And anyway. Uh, Carol Roth. Carol who? Roth? No, no. That's not, that's not the one, but you'll find her. Look up when you, if you look up bootstrapping, you'll, yeah. you'll find, and, um, it, but even, even there, the baby has to start with something. And so uh, her posit is that there are these few things and she identifies these few things that the neocortex is born with, uh, or at least can have access to. Uh, that enables you to, but that laborious process of the of the young baby of uh, of, of learning anything, but which does very readily, but it does it by bootstrapping, pulling, which, you know, based on the the metaphor, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, and uh, it's it's it, oh dear. I uh, will have, you'll have to find out when you well, make I just, the podcast. I just did a quick Google and I couldn't, I couldn't see it. I just, but um, we'll, we'll maybe we'll try and figure that one out and yeah. um, put it out to people. Um, yeah. In, um, in your, in uh, how to educate a citizen, you, you write quite a lot about um, teacher education. Um, now this is, I think this is a, a, a thorny problem for us. I, I interview quite a few um, new teachers who've just come through teacher education. And teacher education in Australia, uh, I think is fairly similar to teacher education in America. There might be some nuanced differences, but the basic philosophy uh, is very similar. That all the, all the new teachers who I talk to tell me that explicit teaching is bad and authoritarian and um, yeah. what, what you need to do is differentiate and uh, for all the different um, students and, um, and, and, you know, all that sort of stuff. What's the other thing that they always come up with? Oh yeah, they're always, um, if you, if you, if you, that was it, this, this is the one they always come up with as well is if you teach engaging enough lessons, then students will always behave. And, and so you've got to engage them with all these activities and stuff like that. Um, so the question is, um, you, you said, you know, in recent decades, teacher training institutions, this is from your book, have been more like theological seminaries than professional training institutes such as nursing or medical schools. So what, what do we do about it, Don? Like, what's the well, solution I, to this? I think, uh, I think universities have a job to do here. Uh, it, is, it should be unacceptable within a university to have 
the psychology department holding theories and premises and findings that are totally different from the psychology departments over in ed schools or the relevant pedagogical uh, problems. And I think more uh, mainstream psychologists should begin exposing the fraudulence of the, the so-called science. As, as uh, uh, Kirshner and company uh, have done, but now there are other people who are also entering that field. I happen to, and I hope that it's the fact that the university should not accept this situation where there is our science and their science, uh, which is what actually was said about uh, whole whole language, you know, that, uh, that continued to, whole language continued to be taught there was no scientific basis for it, and except the romantic naturalist uh, tradition, which is a kind of theology. And uh, yes, I mean, the ed schools need to reform themselves. And I, I have hopes uh, once they, once the uh, inadequacy of the so-called education research is exposed, uh, more fully and constantly. That in itself should do it. There's, there's a piece, I can send it to you, uh, recently done by the chap who's head of the psychology department at Purdue University. And uh, there was a particular constructivist uh, procedure that he got interested in, and he found out it was worthless. It didn't, it didn't work. And uh, he had an article published in, in, in Science. That's, you know, that's top of the line journal. I mean, it's hard to get an article yeah. published in Science magazine. And, and uh, so it had dotted all the I's. And the he then there was, uh, found that there was a so-called meta-analysis in, uh, in some education uh, uh, savant had written a meta-analysis on this constructivist thing. It actually quoted something that the science article had said, but it declined to put the article itself, which shows, showed that it was a useless activity. And it found out, it, you know, to the decimal point with, yeah. uh, with uh, statistical uh, relevance, uh, it, you know, it's all pseudo yeah. science. It's it, and it's a scandal. And if if it isn't exposed, and if people don't come out and expose it, then I think we'll continue. But I think what will happen, I hope, if more people expose it, then some people within the education world who say we can't do this. This is well. This I think this is dishonest. I think there is hope. Um, I, before I explain why I think there is hope, um, I think we we are stuck in a cycle. I wrote my first book was a, a an ebook, which is withdrawn now because I'm gonna. It's t I'm um I've sort of rewritten it almost completely, and it, um, and it's going to be issued as a new book. But sorry, I'm rambling. But the initial book, there's a point to this. I called it Eurobarus, which is the snake that eats its own tail. And the reason I called it that was to signal the, the, the cycles that we go through endlessly yeah. in education. So yeah. uh, in the book, you link to a video on YouTube of uh, progressive education in the 1940s. And I, I looked that up and I've actually put it on Twitter uh, for people to have a look at. Uh, and there's John Dewey towards the end of that video. And he's yes. talking much like if you went to an education conference today and you, you had your shrimp sandwiches and your, uh, and, and all that, and someone stood up and talked, they would say pretty much what John Dewey's saying there, which is right. the future is uncertain, Absolutely. we need yeah. to educate students for the future, all this sort of stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we go round and round. And, and one of the ways that we do this, I think, which you indicate in the book, is we just relabel things. So the project method becomes something else, which, which now is project-based learning. It gets come back because we've all forgotten yeah. The, yeah. the connotations of when it was a failure last time. Progressive education becomes constructivism, but actually yes. constructivism is not 
that constructivism is a psychological theory, but it's been used as a relabeling. Yeah. Um, so, and it goes round and round. Um, so I'm going to propose one of the ways we may get out of this, and then I'll, I'll be interested to see your thoughts. One of the things, one of the reasons I'm here is because of social media. So in 2012, I started writing blog posts. I got on Twitter. I can now communicate with um, teachers from all over the world, in the US, the UK, um, anywhere, um, Ireland, and we can share our experiences, which turn out to be very similar. And we can organize. And, and there's a movement called Research Ed, which uh, organizes yeah. conferences, and that's in the UK, and that's all over. And it's teachers taking the lead here. And I'm thinking uh, that Yes, right. Teachers and <laughs> some brave ed professors, too. Yes. You're, to, kind of, you're bound to find some good, honest rebels in that, uh, in the, uh, you know, among the professoriate. Yeah. Uh, presumably, they would have to have tenure, but... <laughs> <laughs> presumably. But so I, I think... also think, don't you think that university uh, administrators should say, this is unacceptable, that Department A says... A and the other, it's okay in philosophy. It's not okay in science to uh, to have fundamental disagreement. Science is there's a you know there's a at least at any given time there's a preponderance of evidence in one way or another. So yeah. I think we might break the cycle by activating yeah. teachers. Um, have you got any other thoughts yeah. on how we might break the cycle? Well. I just I, I I think it's not a bad idea to be brave enough to uh, like this these chaps uh, in that article. I'll send it to you. It's yeah. just coming out. Uh, who point out that this is really horrible science and uh, and it's incorrect and have more if more people start saying that it. It won't, it seemed to me, to be so um, okay to, co to continue what is essentially theology and, and, and not science. And surely the fact that it doesn't work. I mean, I can't imagine that people think it's okay in the USA. The general public think it's okay for our elementary schools to be the 25th best elementary schools in the world. It, 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 that shouldn't happen to a rich country. But we know, we know that explicit teaching, whole class interactive explicit teaching, with a, with a smile on your face, talking to your whole class at one time, taking them somewhere amazing that they've not been, taking them to ancient Rome or, or wherever it is, and, and a knowledge-rich curriculum, we know, I, I, I'm fairly certain, we, we can't have a randomized control trial because it's really hard to, 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 you know, what, to have eight years or 10 years or whatever of education and run a study that long. But I'm fairly sure from the indications that we've got from controlled studies that that's effective. But even when you have, and in your book you mention it, when you've got a school in a district that is doing all these things and is phenomenally successful, the other schools in the district don't say, oh, we should do that. They just carry no. on. <laughs> no, that's, that's one of the points that was interesting. In, that's the way I started one of my chapters in that book, because there is a, a public, regular public school. It's not a charter school. It's a regular public school in the Washington, D.C. area, which has been doing core knowledge for several years now. It was a brave principal who instituted it against uh, everybody's advice. And, uh, but she did it. And... Uh, now, of course, it's the best school in, in the district, even though it started out as an, as an all-black school and everybody had shunned it. Now, of course, it, it's bursting, it seems, and can't take any more students. Uh, it's, yeah, the, the parents, uh, that's another group, it seems to me, that because, uh, you know, Jeff Litt's schools in the South Bronx can only take 136 students every year they start in kindergarten because nobody leaves and he has over 20,000 applicants i mean i they know and i guess they feel helpless politically 
to do anything about it. But this, this is an, I should think it's an unstable political situation for the education schools themselves. They so maybe, get... maybe we need a politician to realize what's going on, because they're not very good at that, but maybe we need I one. Know. <laughs> well, I can tell you why. Uh, that was another thing that, that occurred to me. Uh, I mean, it's, the teachers shouldn't decide what the na national, if it's an if it's to be a national curriculum, in our country, the state, the individual states in our federal system decide on education policy. However, the states haven't done that. And my proposal is to, for the public to get after the politicians to say, we're gonna vote you out of office if you don't give us a curriculum. And, and <laughs> that's, I mean, that would be, <laughs> uh, I, that would be the way I would try to do it, but you have to you have to make the public realize it. And as I say, in the South Bronx, that could happen in an instant if they had the. I mean, they would vote. Said our schools have to have a curriculum like these schools, other schools, because he can only take 130 uh, kids a year, and here are 20,000 of us wanting that kind of school. So you better make the rest of your schools like his. I don't know. It, it, that's a hope anyway. Well, um, on that um, hope, um, I think it's probably um, a good time to, to, to uh, wrap that up. Um, it's been an absolute uh, privilege um, uh, to talk to you today. Uh, Don, as I said, I've been reading your stuff for years and um, your uh, new book is, it doesn't disappoint. It's, it's, a, ver it's a very good read. So uh, thank you for um, uh, taking the time to um, join me today um, and um, yes and uh, hopefully uh, the book goes well and you get lots of positive feedback. It was a great pleasure Greg, it really was.